You are tuned in to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. University of Hawaii President David Lassner has announced that it's back to the classroom this fall. Hybrid classes, a mix of in-person and remote online learning, will be the order of the day. The news comes as UH is in the midst of finals and as students try to make decisions about the new academic year. UH isn't sure what enrollment will look like as there could be a drop in out-of-state Uh, students and uh, foreign students, but also perhaps a bump in local students as families look at options closer to home. So it will not be business as usual. It will have a variety of safety measures built in. We also plan much more intensive use of technology, and we will also be preparing for any possibility, since none of us really know if there might be a resurgence of the coronavirus in Hawaii on one or more islands during the fall. So what will this plan look like? So we'll have teams on every campus looking at things like how to implement social distancing. You know, I really hate the term social distancing because we don't really socially distance, we just physically distance. So for example, if we have a classroom with 40 chairs, we need to figure out how many chairs can safely fit in there with all of them six feet apart. So we'll be doing those sorts of things also making sure that the faculty are at least six feet away from everybody. That goes for labs as well, study areas, workspaces. We need to make sure that we have provision and instructions for regular hand cleansing and safe practices. And then we're also beginning now to understand what will be the best ways to ensure that we have appropriate testing available along with facilities for isolation for anyone who tests positive, contact tracing, and so forth. So we'll be working with public health officials on those things. Part of the complexity is that we do plan to have our student residence halls available at UH Manoa and UH Hilo for the students who really need us to have a place to live uh, while they pursue their college education. Uh, We only have dorms at UH Hilo and UH Manoa, so we will need to have them open, but again, in a safe way. So not That doesn't mean that every bed in every room will be occupied, but we do want to make sure we have spaces for all of the students who need us. We have, for example, international students who can't necessarily go home. We have students who don't really have a safe home to go to. So in lots of cases, a student, a UH residence hall is safer than the alternatives for our students. And these are particularly some of our disadvantaged students for whom higher education is really the promise for a better life for them and their families. So while it would be easy to just announce all the dorms are closed, um, that doesn't really help take care of some of the students who really need us the most. Are you saying, though, that the number of units, though, might not be available? Oh, absolutely. That's right. I mean, we can't pack people in in necessarily into every room in the same way. And we also have to have provisions to be able to do the isolation ourselves. If we are their home in our residence halls, then we need to make sure that if somebody does test positive or um, has uh, close prolonged contact with somebody who tests positive uh, as determined through a contact tracing process, we need to have a place for them to go where they can isolate and continue their studies. So it's, it's a pretty complex set of requirements that we're preparing to spend the summer working our way through. You know, we're wrapping up what is turning out to be obviously the most unpredicted and tumultuous semester in the history of the university, and probably in universities anywhere. We have successfully 
transition to 100% online. Our students are completing their courses. Those who are ready to graduate will graduate. I can't say enough about our faculty who have adapted with very little notice. This was sprung on them just a couple weeks before spring break that following spring break we would be going to a fully online mode and not soon thereafter we realized it would have to be for the rest of the semester and they have really stepped up including some who were completely unfamiliar with technology. Similarly our students, none of them prepared for a fully online semester, um, have been incredibly resilient uh, whether from homes on Oahu, homes on the neighbor islands, we have students in other countries who are studying from time zones, 12 time zones away, who went home for spring break and didn't come back, and certainly students all over the mainland. So um, the students and the faculty have done an amazing job. And then the core support staff, um, the IT people and the instructional designers who have helped our faculty and students. Um, and we didn't just use our, our help desk support staff, but the number of faculty who were familiar with teaching online who stepped up and helped their colleagues who needed help just to make sure everybody could get through this semester together has been amazing. But that said, if we have to flip back in the fall and there's no guarantees in this life of where the virus will um, resurge, hopefully not, um, we are taking the lessons of this semester uh, to understand how we can do better so that it, it should not be the kind of surprise to us um, if there's an outbreak in the fall. And it could be on one island, it could be on multiple islands. Um, if we have to go to back to 100% online, we will be far more prepared to help our students and faculty with the content materials that they need to be even more successful than they have this semester. We did check in with your chief technology officer, and that was a job that you held before. So I know he had some sleepless nights, and he was worried about how things were going to roll out. But what's your uh, assessment? It's always a great thing when you hire someone to do your old job. But Garrett Yoshimi has done an amazing job, as has his whole team. Hey, Okimoto, one of his deputies, has been on point for a lot of the distance learning things, the technology infrastructure that people were putting together in just three weeks, beefing up all of our online servers to handle the amazing increase in capacity. Garrett's remarkable. I hope he doesn't listen when I say there are a lot of parts of the job that he does better than I did them. Well, now, as far as any ask that might be in the future, I don't know what else you need to do to increase capacity, knowing that we had this big test. We have a group of UH administrators and faculty that meets together regularly to understand how this is going from the faculty perspective and we will work with them um, to understand their perspectives as well as reach out to other faculty. We are also planning to survey our students to ask them what worked well and you know where are the areas for improvement. An interesting aspect of the federal funding for higher education through the CARES Act is it's a lot of it is fairly restrictive on how it can be used, but one of the ways it can be used, and we are strongly encouraged to use it by the U.S. Department of Education, is to invest in um, infrastructure for more online and distance learning. So we believe we can use the resources that have come in. Um, we're still in the process of um, getting those, but we've applied for them. Um, and, and, you know, this is one of those rare times when um, we think we'll have the resources to do what we need um, across our 10 campuses. The, the trick with that money is it cannot be used 
relieve the budget pressures that we know we'll be facing next year, it can at least help with these extraordinary expenses that we'll be facing uh, to prepare for um, the next academic year that will be like no other. What do you think is going to happen with enrollment? Because we've talked to a number of college students, local kids who uh, opted for uh, a mainland college experience, and a couple are rethinking, you know, if we're going to go di- do distance next fall, I might just take a semester off because they don't think they're getting their money's worth. Do you think you're you're going to have to change your marketing strategy? you think you got, might, might get more students staying home? I, I'll say a couple things. One is, um, in my personal opinion, we still provided a very high-quality UH education. I mean, it's really about interaction with our faculty. So whether you're sitting in a room with them or watching them on Zoom, and I think we've all learned a lot about how much can be done at a distance, you know, whether it's Zoom or Google Hangouts or Microsoft Teams, whatever you use, you can still have a very high-quality experience that's highly interactive, and particularly if we take the effort to plan for it, should that be necessary. We are absolutely planning for an on-campus experience. And while nothing is known, uh, that is our expectation, given the great job the state has done in flattening the curve. And when you watch the data, as I do every day, I mean, we've been in single digits now for over a week, um, which is quite remarkable. I'd say a few things to students. There's no value in waiting. That's a semester in which there probably won't be very many opportunities for employment. On the back end, it's going to be a semester in which, you know, you aren't working. And frankly, if someone's afraid to come back to school in the fall, there's no guarantee that it's going to be better in the spring. There aren't many experts suggesting that there will be a vaccine available by spring 2021. Those who choose to pursue a college education you know, a bachelor's degree on average is worth about a million dollars more in lifetime earnings. Those are individuals who are less likely to become unemployed in the next recession. They're faster to get a job back after the recession is over. They draw less social services. They are healthier through their lives. They live longer, less likely to become incarcerated, more likely to vote, more likely to volunteer, and their children are more likely to go to college. So if they're on a pathway to go to college, in my opinion, they should go to college. And the University of Hawaii offers, you know, 10 great options across our islands so they can stay home and safe with their family. If they're worried about the expense, our community colleges are an incredible value, as are, frankly, UH Hilo, UH West Oahu, and UH Manoa is a great value for one of the world's premier research universities. What we are hearing is what you are hearing, that some are having second thoughts. We're hearing it even more so about students thinking of going to the mainland, particularly biting off that expense, not knowing what their mainland college experience will be like. And it will not be like it would have been last year. As I've shared with you, our experience will be different too. We're doing a lot to prepare for uh, the impact of the pandemic, either in a light mode where we survive with social distancing or if we have to flip back to online. We are also hearing from a lot of students who are prepared to go off to the mainland that maybe this isn't the time to leave their families. Maybe this isn't the time to incur you know, the substantial debt that's typically associated with a mainland college experience You know, that can be $60,000 or more as compared to staying home and staying, you know, if, if you're staying home, uh, in the you know, less than $12,000 range for tuition, even if you go to UH Manoa. 
That said, we're also concerned similarly about our mainland and international enrollment. Very hard for international students to get visas right now, so that's a big uncertainty for us. We think we're going to do pretty well with students from the West Coast. We have a really attractive tuition option for them through the, the WUI program, the Wichi Understate, Wichi Undergraduate Enrollment Program. Probably a little less uptick from the rest of the U.S., however. So we, we could actually have more students uh, because of the number of local students who choose to stay home. And that was UH President David Lassner talking about resuming in-person classes this fall and the precaution needed to keep students and staff safe. It's unclear if UH will see a drop in international or out-of-state students. Enrollment is up for its first summer school session, which will stay as online learning. A decision about second summer session uh, will be made on May 15th. And it's now time to take a look across the globe. Coronavirus-related deaths in one European ca- uh, country overtakes the count in Italy to become the highest on the continent. And a hospital in London experiments with a new way to help COVID-19 patients with breathing problems. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Tuesday the 5th of May. I'm Janat Jalil. Official figures show the UK now has the highest number of deaths related to COVID-19 in Europe. India is to bring home hundreds of thousands of its citizens stranded overseas because of the government lockdown. And can naval divers help coronavirus patients recover? The United Kingdom has outstripped Italy in the number of coronavirus deaths, becoming the worst affected country in Europe. Both governments have recorded more than 29,000 fatalities. But Britain's Office for National Statistics says the real figure in the UK is even higher, at more than 32,000. Only the United States has lost more lives to the disease. Meanwhile, a trial is beginning in Britain of a new contact tracing app designed to limit the spread of the virus. It's taking place on the Isle of Wight off the south coast of England. Here's Rory Kethlin-Jones. This app, on which so much depends, is still very much a work in progress, so the team behind it will be examining closely how people on the Isle of Wight use it. One key question, will enough people download it to make a real impact? Getting as many as 60% of residents to use it in a place with fewer smartphone owners than average is a huge challenge. With privacy campaigners still concerned about the way the app collects and stores data, this trial will also be a test of public trust in this new technology. The leading German scientific advisor on the coronavirus, Lothar Wieler, says most scientists expect a second wave of infection later this year. Professor Wieler said that the country was already well prepared for the disease to rebound, as happened during the so-called Spanish flu pandemic after the First World War. The Indian government has announced plans for the mass evacuation of hundreds of thousands of citizens who've been stranded overseas since March when India's coronavirus lockdown began. Jill McGivering reports. In late March, India banned international flights as part of its tough national lockdown. Hundreds of thousands of Indians found themselves stranded overseas. Many are based in the Middle East as unskilled or semi-skilled migrant workers. Now, with lockdown finally easing, a plan's been announced to bring them home, most by plane on special government flights, others aboard three Indian Navy ships. On Tuesday, India announced nearly 4,000 more cases of coronavirus, the highest jump in a single day. The British airline Virgin Atlantic has become the latest carrier to announce big job losses because of the pandemic. It plans to cut more than 3,000 staff, about a third of its workforce. The firm will also close its operation at Gatwick Airport outside London. 
President Trump has said that Dr. Anthony Fauci, the public face of the scientific battle against the virus in the U.S., will be allowed to give evidence to the Senate. Last week, the White House blocked Dr. Fauci from testifying to a congressional committee investigating the administration's response, saying it would be counterproductive while the response was still ongoing. But Mr. Trump had this to say. The House is a setup. The House is a bunch of Trump haters. They put every Trump hater on the committee, the same old stuff. They frankly want our situation to be unsuccessful, which means death. Houthi rebels who control much of North Yemen have reported the first coronavirus death in the capital, Sana'a. A rebel-owned television station said the victim died on Sunday. More than 20 cases and three deaths have been confirmed elsewhere in the country. Syria has announced the conditions under which it is allowing Friday prayers to resume at mosques as the country relaxes restrictions imposed to fight the virus. Only men will be allowed to attend and they'll have to wear face masks and to practice social distancing. Many hospitals around the world are currently operating under pressure as the pandemic continues. One hospital in London has come up with an ingenious way of helping patients with breathing problems. The Royal Free has been using medically trained deep sea divers to help out in intensive care units. The man behind the project, Dr Michael Bertelli, explained why. We just thought that they would understand the physiology of respiration. They would understand how masks work. They work remotely in a chamber, taking instructions from the surface. And that can be for two or three days while they bring a diver to the surface. An Indonesian singer who helped to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for people affected by the coronavirus has died. Didi Kempot, who was 53, died in hospital in central Java. His music about love and loss prompted fans to call him the godfather of the broken-hearted. Here he is singing Pama Boju. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Backyard Quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know what you know about an iconic surfing spot off of Oahu's North Shore near Sunset Beach. It's well known for its barreling wave that breaks over a defined shallow lava ledge uh, amidst an extremely sharp reef. It features both right and left breaks and is crowded all winter long, generally. Uh, it's made its de- uh, it, it made its debut on the big screen in the late uh, 1950s when filmmaker Bruce Brown was shooting a surf movie entitled Slippery When Wet. The story goes his cameras were rolling on Sunset Beach when he spotted the sets at this spot in the distance and decided to include them in one of the scenes. We know this break on this seemingly secluded stretch of beach today as Velzy Land, named after a surfboard shaper from California. 
But just as every location in Hawaii with an English name or a nickname given by locals, Velziland also has a Hawaiian name. Do you know what it is? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Aloha Friday Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HBR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. COVID-19, how to build better. That's why 80 architects across the country with the AIA, the American Institute of Architects, have been meeting intently during this health crisis. They are looking to problem solve as communities try to build in physical distancing in this health crisis. Honolulu architect Dean Sakamoto is part of that national committee. He also sits on the AIA State Council and serves as the Disaster Risk and Resiliency Coordinator. Sakamoto completed an office project for the Elemental Accelerator just as everyone began working remotely. The open floor plan builds or offers built-in flexibility as office workers begin to return to the workplace. In order to solve problems, we first need the right information to base our design solutions on. So in regard to COVID-19, we're still in the, inf- the information gathering process. Uh, and we're trying to filter that, uh, especially through this uh, uh, AIA National Committee, where we have 80 uh, other architects and some experts in public health who are contributing to this information gathering, also filtering that information in regard to what is relevant to the design of cities and buildings. And then all of that, is, uh, once that information is analyzed and processed, you know, we can make recommendations, but there's a whole process of legal constraints, such as building codes and zoning rules that are the result of the science that, you know, the information is based on. So science is number one, uh, as we've been hearing on, on TV as well, uh, right? Listen to Dr. Fauci first, and then filter it to the respective areas of expertise, like in this case, uh, design of cities and buildings. Uh, And then also best practices, which inform our design work, emerges for wider application uh, to specific situations uh, and problems that we are assigned to solve. Right. So we're talking about, you know, maybe changing the paradigm when it comes to office space or school space as we start opening up classrooms. Schools are of particular concern to me morally and socially because, you know, it's the next generation we have to prepare, right, to take over. And uh, I think they're getting the short end of the stick in that regard. You know, there are all kinds of things that can be recommended. But uh, uh, as I said earlier, you know, the government needs to establish what is going to be legal based on science, and then we follow suit. Science informs government who establish laws, planners and designers, like, like architects and engineers and urban planners, address these legal constraints through the design problem-solving process, right, which, which we do on an everyday basis at all kinds of levels. But we also, what's I think special about what architects bring to the table uh, and planners as well and our engineering colleagues is the factoring for the social and cultural considerations, right? And the specific economic constraints 
for, for each project or, or problem. We are change makers at the end of the day, and we proactively think ahead and think everything through. Uh, we do our best to draw plans that reflect uh, the forethought, uh, and then we rely on the construction industry, right? Our partner, uh, our partners in realizing uh, the forethought planning and design. Uh, so <clears throat> I think a lot has to be done uh, in preparation for making this, these changes, and uh, or, you know, from the national to you know to local. Uh, and then to the project-based levels. Uh, uh, and there's a tradition for that. I mean, I just came across a post in a, a, on a site called City Lab, uh, and, you know, which cited the fact that, that pandemics um, in the past have really shaped cities. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, uh, going back to, uh, uh, you know, my architectural and urban history courses, you know, uh, you know major changes, catastrophic changes, and in fact, revitalization and improvements of cities over, over the centuries have been, really made uh, because of uh, uh, the issue of, of disease, right, to create a more sanitary and, uh, you know, a, a better environment. And so you can look at the situation we're in as an opportunity to reset also and to improve what we currently have, as we say, uh, in the disaster field, you know, let's build back better, right, rather than just replace what's, what's there before. The Paris, France that we know today with the broad boulevards, the, you know, beautifully designed streets and avenues, you know, were the result of Napoleon's mandate to his chief planner, Baron Haussmann, to redesign the city, to straighten out the crooked medieval streets, to make them broader and wider for to reduce the transmission of disease. But uh, Napoleon also had a, kind of a social political motive, too, behind that. He, all, he was also looking at the control the riots that were, were, were prevalent in the medieval quarter. Fast forward to our Chinatown here in Honolulu, there are two significant fires, uh, one at the end of the 19th century and then the fi fire in 1900, uh, which was supposed to be a controlled burn to uh, mitigate the, the rat infestation that was causing the plague. And as the story goes, the fire department's controlled burn leveled most of Chinatown, most of the 19th century, 18th, 19th century urban fabric. Interesting story in relation to one of our projects that uh, my office is working on, the Wolf Fat Restaurant, which is a landmark Chinese restaurant, which is until it closed in the two, early 2000s, it was the longest running Chinese restaurant in Honolulu, and it survived. It actually burned down through both fires, but the business survived, and by 1934, the Wolf Fat that we see today that's now vacant but soon to be renovated into a, a restaurant and a, a micro hotel was built out of concrete. So the architect, Y.T. Char, had the sense to recommend to his clients say, hey, if you don't want to build it, build Wolf Fat again for the third time, why don't we just build it on concrete? And that he did, uh, which helps us today uh, because we have a robust concrete frame building to renovate and restore. So you've got kind of the long-term planning, problem-solving, and then you have, you know, maybe some short-term problem-solving that needs to be done as, you know, we move out of isolation but still have to do the physical distancing part. You know, moving forward, and, and I think this is, happening very quickly as we speak because the government is starting to, on many levels, right, and from the national to the state to local level, is starting to open up facilities. So there are, I think, low-hanging fruit retrofits that we can do and we really should do in both our urban spaces, parks, streets. We can do a, what I call a phase mitigation through retrofitting and then also for our, our facilities like schools, workplaces, grocery stores, churches, and other places where people will soon gather again. Some of the examples can include like pop-up sanitation stations, uh, you know, these are not new, but also include a personal protection equipment vending so you can have, people can have their things ready at, you know, gloves and hand sanitizer that ready, uh, both at entries and exits and, uh, you know, strategic locations in the streets. But I think what's really important and what how, how architects, you know, really can help and should help, I think, is to 
come up with uh, revised space planning layouts and standards, especially for our public schools, so they can get back to work. And, uh, and you know, uh, you know, it comes back to, to classroom size, right? Because standard classroom uh, is a hair under a thousand square feet, DOE standard. But now, you know, at uh, a six foot radius around a student, you know, you're talking about a, a much lower density of students, which I think the teachers will like, but behavior will also have to change, right? So hopefully then you as designers and planners can be a part of this conversation with our institutions as we kind of move into this phase, this next phase of COVID? What we have the benefit of in private industry, and in my case, you know, the DOE is one of my clients, a public client, is, you know, we can offer them proactive advice. And But the DOE, of course, has to work with, you know, they're part of government, which moves at a slower pace. But uh, uh, I just want them to know that, you know, we're here to help them. I mean, for example, uh, our mechanical, one of my favorite mechanical engineers, Scott Inosuka, you know, came up with his own recommendations because, you know, he designs air, air conditioning systems, plumbing, and he came up with a, a two-page best practices for what, what, you know, he recommends. Like, for example, upgrade air filters, you know, in the uh, in air conditioning units to change them out right away uh, and also, you know, do things like for plumbing fixtures, you know, install touchless uh, fixtures, right, where you don't, won't have to, you know, put your hands on things for germ transmission. As we stop and think and and reflect about the strange time that we're in, whether it's short term or the long term, we have to think about resiliency. Yes, uh, and uh, our critical facilities, such as hospitals, you know, police stations and fire stations, are really, you know, they set the standard because they just have to be planned and designed to the highest standard. But, you know, this this public health issue, right, this virus is now is, you know, become a critical issue. Like, for example, like uh, people don't worry about a hurricane until it hits, right, which is kind of unfortunate. But I also have to say that, you know, we, you know, we're about to move into a, a new hurricane season, right? Um, and it's time to get prepared. But now with this pandemic, our standards now and our, our best practices, our rules, even for the design of critical facilities, now we'll have to be conscious of uh, germ transmission. That was Honolulu architect Dean Sakamoto talking about how to build better post-pandemic. Sakamoto founded Shade, a public design institute looking to solve design problems in Hawaii. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. Here in Hawaii, there's a special appreciation for things that are local. And we take that seriously at HPR, where 30% of the programs you hear are made in-house by our own team. Everything from morning cafe to the conversation, bridging the gap to evening jazz. Whether you're a news junkie or a music lover, HPR's local programming keeps you rooted in our shared island community. Learn more about our shows at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat puts the spotlight on contact tracing. Politics and opinion editor Chad Blair joins us from their Kaimuki Studios. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, right here on Wailai. Thanks, Catherine. (laughs) Yeah, so we've been hearing lots about this contact tracing, and I saw there's a bit of a brouhaha in the administration. Yes, um, 
some tension. And just to, to recap, contact tracing means once you've identified someone who has the symptoms of COVID-19, they've been tested, then the idea is to then find out who they've been in touch with to find out maybe more people may have been infected. Really, this is key to controlling uh, the spread of COVID-19 to mitigate against the problems because uh, it's included along with three other pillars as necessary before we can reopen our economy. So in addition to contact tracing, you also have to have screening, which of course we talk about, testing, and then isolation if you do find someone. But here's the rub. Is the Department of Health doing enough? Does it have enough staff in place to handle contact tracing. Right, and so we understand that uh, the state health director thinks that we're okay as far as our staff, right. but the head of HAIMA, um, I don't know, doesn't agree. <laughs> <laughs> that would be correct. Uh, nice summary, Catherine. <laughs> Br- of course, Bruce Anderson is the director of the Department of Health, um, and he says that he currently has 50 staff dedicated to contact tracing, 30 volunteers as well involved. He believes that's relatively enough given the fact that we've had a low number of cases in Hawaii. I believe the latest count is 17 deaths and I is it 621 cases or so. We'll get another update later today. But on the other side, you have Major General Ken Hara and yeah, he runs the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. He's also Governor Ige's point person on trying to control this uh, and the spread of COVID. And he's saying, no, there's there's not enough. Why don't we have Haima help out the DOH in trying to get the proper staffing in order to do contact tracing properly? Right. And I did see the press conference, so I know he was like, well, maybe we can get the governor to order the health department to accept our Correct. is actually going to make that request. Uh, on his side are some other folks. And by the way, this all comes out of uh, two things yesterday. One was the House panel on COVID trying to get us back and in, in, in ready to reopen the economy, but also a press conference with Governor Ige. But on the side of HARA are folks like uh, the CEO of HMSA, uh, Dr. Mark uh, Mugi Ushi, uh, excuse me, Mugi Ishi, apologize for the mispronunciation, saying, look, there's a lot of folks at the nursing school that would love to help out. There's hundreds of people that could help with health experience, public health expertise to do this. You've also got Carl Bonham, uh, of course, the UH economist saying, hey, there are thousands of out of work healthcare people uh, in Hawaii that could also be used in order to do this, do this contact tracing right. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, we had a story on earlier about how I think in uh, in uh, uh, in England uh, where they're using an app mm, for contact yeah. tracing. Um, I also just had a conversation recently with the uh, uh, Shamanad University president, and they have a program there to train people on how to do this. So, you know, it's just interesting to see uh, what we've got in our community and then, you know, what other countries are doing just to tackle this issue. Right. And it is a numbers issue, too. So I mentioned 50 staff, 30 volunteers already in place at DOH for contact tracing. Well, it turns out there's a study nationally specifically on COVID-19 on contact tracing. You mentioned other other countries. Here is a report nationally saying there's actually a formula to work out how many people you need. So for every 100,000 people in your population, uh, you need to have 30 professionals being active 
actively involved in contact tracing. So we'll do the math. Bah, 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 bah. That turns out <laughs> to be 420 people involved in contact tracing. So that's 80 compared to 420. And by the way, if you add tourist, remember, on average, back when tourism was tourism, that's 250,000 people a day. So that means dozens and dozens of more people to be involved with contact tracing. So that's a huge difference of opinion on the numbers that are necessary. Right. And so you'd have to really hurry up and hire and train um, these added, you know, workers. And I know Bruce Anderson has maintained that, you know, you can't just hire somebody off the street, that, that it's a lot more complicated. Right. And, and this report, by the way, uh, is from two reporters, Stuart Yurton, who covers business, and Eleni Gill, who covers health. And they've been on the, you know, really working hard on the COVID-19 story. One of the frustrations is we have not been, when I say we, meaning the media, we have not been able to get exactly uh, the right a number, uh, the exact numbers from the Department of Health of what it needs. Bruce Anderson does say they are looking at evaluating their staff needs. They are bringing people on with epidemiology skills, but some vagueness in terms of what those exact numbers are. Right. All right. Well, we'll just have to see how things go. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was uh, Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, read the story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Fleming and Associates Architecture and Planning, located in Hilo. Since 2009, working to provide design solutions that help to enhance island communities. Proud supporter of HPR. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, how do you reopen a country? We speak with a governor, a former CDC director, a pandemic forecaster, and an economist who thinks we need better testing incentives. We could put a billion dollars a week into this lottery. Who wants to play Panda Millions? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Tonight at 7, following Counterspin. In today's Backyard Quiz, we've been talking about a well-known surfing spot along Oahu's North Shore. You probably know it as Velzi Land. If you've never seen it while driving along Kamehameha Highway, it's because it's separated from the roadway by a wooded area, which adds to the beach's private feel and provides plenty of shade for beachgoers. It doesn't have a dedicated parking lot, so you have to access it on foot through the Sunset Colony gated community. The spot got its name in 1957 when filmmaker Bruce Brown, best known for the surf classic Endless Summer, decided to include it in one of his other films. He named it Velzyland in honor of the film's sponsor, surfboard manufacturer and Californian Dale Velzy. But to the original inhabitants of the area and the current residents with roots stretching to pre-1950s Oahu, it is known as Kaunala Beach. And congratulations, Dave Cheney, of Palolo, you got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it, please, to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. The coronavirus.
coronavirus crisis has caused stress and worry for many people, especially those on the front line. Helping them strengthen their spirit, as they have for many years, are chaplains. Of course, social distancing is now in place to stop the spread of the disease, and it's changed the way that they work. Reverend Al Miles has been with the Pacific Health Ministry for the past 27 years. He's been the lead chaplain at the Queens Medical Center in Honolulu. He spoke with the conversation's Jason Ubai about what he does and how it's been affected by the coronavirus crisis. I have been assigned the entire time as the lead chaplain at uh, the Queens Medical Center downtown Honolulu, so the Punchbowl campus. And that role up until about eight weeks ago entailed providing the spiritual and emotional care and support to patients, their loved ones, staff and physicians, and also included mentoring uh, chaplain interns and residents who would come into our program to prepare for ministry. And so that was the common standard of, of work for those nearly 27 years, and then COVID-19 took root and suddenly changed everything. Still providing spiritual care, emotional care uh, support to patients. The loved ones is now, it's it's a distant type of spiritual care. We don't have visitors except for rare situations. There are no visitors in in the the hospital, but we still, through uh, media, social media platforms, through cell phones, through iPads, through Zoom, we're still in contact oftentimes with loved ones, sometimes through landlines. And we still visit patients on a regular basis. We do not visit in person, COVID-19 positive patients, but the rest of our hospital patients that we see, not only at this institution, but the other institutions we, we serve, they're, they're still seen physically by us. We still make the visits, still offer spiritual and emotional care. Some of the things that have changed are the outreach that we provide to the staff. We always uh, provided spiritual and emotional care to our staff. And by staff, I mean not only nurses and physicians and social workers, those clinical personnel, but also to anyone who serves in the hospital. So that could be the grounds people, that could be our couriers, that could be housekeepers, pharmacists, whoever's in the hospital. What it, what has changed drastically in the last several weeks are the, the many avenues of support that we offer now that weren't needed at the time. I mean, there's, there's a lot of um, need for people to be reassured a lot of time for people to to talk about their anxiety, not only about them testing positively, the possibility of them testing positively for COVID-19, but what if I take the virus home to my family? Or people will often say, I've got young kids, I've got grandkids, I can't visit my family who live someplace other than in the Hawaiian Islands. So 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 there's a lot of a lot of listening, a lot of praying and throughout the PHM system we offer a number of things to the people that we care for that 
like I said, wasn't necessarily needed before. And most of these things are being offered virtually, you know, uh, through via cell phone, via Zoom. At Queens, we have something called WebEx. We do a lot of uh, communication with one another there. And just a, a brief listing of the things that, that we provide to, to, to staff to offer support. We have uh, weekly peace of mind sessions, guided meditation, which is sometimes called guided imagery. And it's a method of meditation where we ask people to form images of places or situations that they find relaxing. And mindfulness meditation, which is based on being mindful, having an increased awareness and and, and, uh, acceptance of living in the present moment. We ask people to focus on what they experience uh, doing meditation, such as the flow of their breath, to observe their thoughts, their emotions, and to let these things pass without judgment. And our chaplains provide such things as uh, words of the day for encouragement to, to the people where we serve and daily thoughts of encouragement. One of the things that were, was given by our uh, Hawaii Pacific chaplains put together by one of our PHM residents, chaplain residents, Chaplain Jennifer, uh, and assisted by one of our staff chaplains, Chaplain Puanani, with some words from Shakespeare as well, is this uh, encouraging word called eyes namaka. And this is what was said, although it can feel as though your face is all but hidden under a mask and shield, know that we still see you. We see your effort, your smile, your tiredness, your hope for others, all through your eyes shining, darkening, and gleaming. It is said that the eyes are the window to the soul. Thank you for the many ways you bring your heart and your soul and your humanity to this time and place. We see you and appreciate you. Is there something that would be comforting for our listeners that, you know, maybe they're not working on the front lines, but they have to, you know, they're being asked to do a lot out of their normal routine. What would you say to? Well, one of the things I would say is people have said it before, and it's always a a challenging and also a a difficult walk when I say it, you know, that and others have said it, of course, that we will get through this, that. I don't want to say it too quickly because that can feel trite even when you're thinking about people who have lost their jobs, lost their way of living, um, can't visit their family. Uh, One of our physicians said, you know, I'm about ready to have a new baby and my mom lives on the mainland and she can't come here and I can't go there. So I don't want to say to a person like that, we'll get through this, or the woman or man who no longer works and, and, and is having trouble even getting unemployment, I don't want to say that too quickly, you know, we'll get through this. I I do talk in terms of doing a lot of listening. I definitely will ask people what they need. Spontaneously, when I'm walking around the hospital and other of our chaplains have talked about these experiences as well, that if we listen, people will tell us what we can do to help them. 
if if we're if we're long-winded um, spiritual leaders and just talking, 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 we may not hear what people need. So a lot of times when people stop by my office at a social distance, of course, but my office people can sit here and we can be six feet apart with the proper PPE on. They will say, right now, I just needed somebody to listen to me. I'm, I'm, uh, my husband's out of work. I'm here, but I don't make the kind of money that he made. Please say a prayer for me, and so I will. Or thank you for listening. Or what, what helps with self care? Do you have any any words for me? And you know, you ask ten people, what do they do to take care of themselves? You might get ten different answers from from the gamut of such things as I go running, walking, biking, I I bake, I do these kind of things. So so to the to the people, to the listeners, your listeners, definitely I I will talk a lot about listening, uh offering prayer, offering brief words of comfort, like I talked about the words of the day that so many of our chaplains offer. You know, those kind of things like that. So yeah, it is it is a a most I will be 69 in June and it's the most unique time that I've experienced in my life. Nothing like this. And so what I've learned to do is to um reach out to others. Our chaplains also because we're human first, we also need that kind of support and care. And so uh, Reverend Akafleur, our executive director, has arranged that twice a week we meet for an hour to listen to each other as a peer support, whatever we may be going through, both both personally and professionally. And then the third time we meet, it's really a virtual staff meeting where we're meeting by Zoom and we're talking about the work of how do we care for other people. So, so we need both of those. We need to we need to continue to talk about the many things that we do to uh, reach out to other folks, and then we need to talk about how do we care for one another and get the different ideas from the different chaplains. Reverend Al Miles, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and uh, offering some words of encouragement. Well, thank you so much, Jason, and uh, thank you for having me on your show. That was Reverend Al Miles, chaplain with the Pacific Health Ministry, which serves several hospitals and care facilities on Oahu, Kauai, and Maui. Well, that's it for today. Tomorrow, we continue our look at how higher education is planning uh, for the fall with a look at the strategy of private universities here in Hawaii. We would like to hear from you. You got a story idea or know of someone that you think we should have a conversation with? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Mm-hmm.